Welcome to episode 89 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today on the show, I speak to Leonard Blaisby. Leonard is the outgoing Head of Mission for the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, in Australia. At the end of our interview, you'll hear about the very big and exciting role that Leonard is taking on next. Since joining the ICRC in 2000, Leonard has held a variety of positions across Africa, Europe and the Pacific. He worked for eight years in Africa, serving as Deputy Head of Delegation in Southern Africa, Legal Advisor in Zimbabwe and Communications Coordinator in the Horn of Africa. He then served in the ICRC's Geneva headquarters for more than four years. He's been the Australian Head of Mission since 2012. In the episode, Leonard and I discussed Leonard's distinguished career working with the ICRC in vulnerable communities around the world, the challenges that he's faced in his work, and how the international humanitarian sector has evolved, or in Leonard's words, professionalised. We discussed the threat multiplier effect of COVID-19 and the impact it's having on already conflict-affected communities. On a lighter note, we also discussed some of the innovative partnerships the ICRC has entered into, including with the video game Fortnite. We've included relevant links in the show notes, along with recent articles from the Dev Policy blog on Australian aid in the Pacific. If you're interested in today's podcast, you might also be interested in a new Dev Policy blog, which shows an unprecedented divergence between defence spending and aid spending in Australia. Stephen Howes, the Dev Policy Director, shows that adjusting for inflation, Australian defence spending is projected to grow by $20 billion to 2030, whereas aid spending isn't projected to grow at all. Given the humanitarian crises and trends we're seeing all around us and discussed in today's episode, that trend doesn't make sense. For more, go to devpolicy.org. Enjoy the episode. Leonard, thanks for speaking with me. You've had a distinguished career at the International Committee of the Red Cross since joining in 2000. What prompted you to start working with the ICRC originally? Uh, I think it was fate, really. Uh, I was a lawyer, a criminal defence lawyer in South Australia and in Victoria. And during that time, I had an interest in uh, international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict. And where I worked with the Legal Services Commission in South Australia, the Legal Services Commission were actually the defence lawyers for Polyukovic and Wagner, who were two people uh, in the 90s who were charged with war crimes war crimes that went back to the Second World War. Um, so that was an initial interest. But I also got involved as a volunteer with the Australian Red Cross and was doing some work where I played the ICRC in some military exercises. I did further study in international humanitarian law and became and knew a number of people from the ICRC as a result. And uh, then they asked me if I would be interested in working in Southern and Eastern Africa. And presumably you said yes. I did. And that's when I went to initially Zimbabwe in, in 2000. Wow. Okay. So over the past two decades, you've worked with the ICRC across the Horn of Africa, Zimbabwe, Nairobi and Switzerland. Which posting left the greatest impression on you? That's a very difficult one because they were all very different. I... Um, worked as the legal advisor for the region in southern and eastern Africa and there I was working with governments to get them to 
ratify and put in place local law to make sure that they were in line with international treaties. So that was a, a very sort of legal um, job. Uh, but then I also was the deputy head of our delegation in, in South Africa, which was regional at the time. And in 2002, there was violence and unrest in Madagascar, um, which became quite uh, acute. And uh, we ended up visiting detainees and providing assistance there. So that was very operational. And then I think shaping our message in the Horn of Africa was quite fascinating for me. On one day, you'd be running a, uh, a moot court or, or a mock trial for law students. And then the next, you'd be sitting in the bush talking to tribes of cattle herders to try and stop them raiding each other's cattle and, and killing people in the process. So very varied work. When you say shaping the message, what was the message of the ICRC in the Horn of Africa? It really depended on where you were talking about. Uh, it was either international humanitarian law, so making sure that you keep within the um, the laws relating to armed conflict, so protecting civilians and uh, dealing with people who are detained properly, all of those sorts of things. But it was also the message of access, allowing the ICRC the access to people on the ground that we really needed. Um, that allows us to do what our mandate is, and that is to protect and assist people affected by armed conflict. So it's getting to those people and being able to do what you need to do. I mean, the reason I ask is because the Red Cross is known for being non-political, and I wonder how that manifests when you're working in some of these really complex countries. Yes, that is a, a message which can be difficult, but when you're when your basis is the principles of neutrality and independence and impartiality, and you have that drilled into you um, to some degree, and you asked me one of the reasons why I joined the ICRC, and I think it was actually the principles as well, the fact that we are a non-political body, it gives you a very different perspective of the world, and it gives you a different perspective of the context in which you are working. When you realise that the ICRC's great strength is being able to cross lines from those held by government forces to those held by non-state armed groups or rebels or whatever you want to, to call the other side, that um, those principles really come into their own. And I think knowing that shapes the message in itself. Was the biggest challenge you faced maintaining that neutrality and independence or were there other aspects of the work that were more challenging? I think that is always a challenge because everyone, I think, looks at the situation and we know that some people within the ICRC want to speak out, but I think that those principles really do uh, guide the work of everyone who works for the ICRC. So yes, having those strictures, I suppose, to some degree is a challenge. But I also think that there are many and varied, but one of them is actually having your message heard, having the message of, of the difficulties that people in places like Africa and the Middle East face can be can be difficult to to cut through the noise of a lot of the other things that are 
um, absorbing people in terms of the media. So that I think is is a big challenge. And as the communications coordinator in the Horn of Africa, that was something that I faced uh, on a daily basis. Presumably one of the areas where we've seen the most change since you first started working at the ICRC is in the importance of communications for development. Outside of that, how have you seen the international humanitarian community evolve over the last decade or more? I think the sector, the humanitarian sector or community or or ecosystem, as as some people like to call it, has become more professional over the 20 years that I've been a part of it. While there's always new challenges, I think the unpredictability of humanitarian crises actually is the thing that's remained the most predictable feature. Um, The the need to be ready for, for rapid response to adapt to new humanitarian challenges, but also to learn from from our mistakes and to critically question our own beliefs and practices, I think has been a constant um, necessity in the humanitarian sector over that time. But I think we've got better at responding to emergencies, saving lives more quickly and, and more efficiently. I think we've had no choice in the ICRC but to unfortunately do more, to do it better and in a most cost-effective way. Our our budget has almost doubled in the last decade to address both climate-related disasters but ongoing conflict in particular. And we're dealing with more protracted conflicts and a more complex conflict landscape. So I think those really are, are challenges that come from working in the sector for that time. But I think the sector is also pretty fit to meet most of those challenges. It's interesting that you say that the budget of the ICRC has doubled, which of course is to meet the needs of an increasingly large population of vulnerable people globally. But it does beg the question of whether modern day NGOs are fit for purpose and especially whether the funding model is sustainable. But it sounds as though the ICRC has come through these turbulent times okay. Okay, yes, I would say we've come through it okay. But I think um, we always have to look at different ways to deal with how we work. I know that we we have a new Director General at at the ICRC who only started uh, just over 100 days ago. Um, And he's very keen on making sure that we are smarter about the way we do things, that we look at some of the strictures that we've had as a result of the COVID pandemic and be able to learn from that in terms of what we can perhaps do remotely, for example, um, but also some of the using technology in a, in a, in a smarter and, and better way. Of course, for us, doing things remotely is quite difficult because our, our added value is being there next to the people who are being affected by the conflict. So that's something we don't want to um, to compromise at all. Moving on slightly now, how do you define the humanitarian development nexus? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I mean, um, for us, uh, the, the nexus really is, I mean, it's two different things at once. Of course, development we usually see as, you know, a strategically planned activity that's driven by governments to to reduce poverty and create prosperity. 
On the other hand, because that's really a sort of whole of society, whole of country endeavour. But humanitarian relief is conceived as exceptional. It's temporary emergency measures to save lives. And as an exceptional emergency response, humanitarian relief is, as I mentioned, delivered directly with humanitarian workers substituting the authorities. But protracted crises have challenged some of the aspects of the traditional distinction, I think, between relief or humanitarian uh, action and development. Time frame, I think, is, is a case in point. In long wars or in sort of no war, no peace, if you'd like to use that, situations, humanitarian actors often carry out these activities which go beyond the short-term emergency relief. For us in the ICRC, for example, um, our assistance operations alongside the life-saving um, relief, we have activities that can, I suppose, challenge the traditional conceptions of what is humanitarian and what is development. ICRC, for example, will support microeconomic initiatives, those that help displaced people, returnees and other victims of conflict um, to generate income and diversify their livelihoods um, by strengthening local agricultural and even veterinarian capacity to safeguard animal health and improve crop yields. That can be seen as development, but we do that in protracted crises because we need to do more than provide seeds and tools. We need to be able to provide things that speak longer term. So we speak in terms of what's sustainable humanitarian impact. We're not only life-saving, but also life-sustaining action, I suppose, is taken to support people to, to rebuild their lives with autonomy, with agency and, and with dignity. It's a situation where long-term or chronic needs and protection-related risks arising from both armed con conflict and also from violence are, are both durably reduced and sometimes prevented. What problems do you think are posed, though, by the blurring of lines between the humanitarian and development sectors? I think there are times where they have to be kept separate. And this is particularly the case when, as I mentioned before, development um, funding and development work really is aimed at states and their development of their societies. And in some conflicts, that can pose a problem, particularly where the state itself is a party to the conflict. And where you may be having to deal, because they're the people who control the territory, with perhaps one or many non-state armed groups. So I think in those sorts of situations, the idea of, of um, working in a humanitarian frame as opposed to a development frame needs to be looked at very closely. These protracted long-term crises are often referred to as wicked problems, as is the overlap between poverty and climate change. And the overlap between the two has never been more apparent and concerning than it is now. 
Are you optimistic about the humanitarian community's ability to face up to these wicked problems? Optimism. Um, I think I think most people who work for the ICRC are innately glass half full rather than glass half empty people. I think it is difficult to do some of the work that we do without having that mind frame or mindset. But I think since what since 2010, the number of major violent conflicts has, has tripled, and the projections to 2030 are that between 43 and 60 percent of the world's extreme poor will be in fragile conflict or violent settings. Recognising the, the increasing protracted nature of conflict that I spoke about before and the link between poverty and fragility, the ICRC recently signed a memorandum of understanding with the World Bank, which aims to shape policies and provide a voice for those who are, are vulnerable and, and neglected communities in violence-affected contexts. This uh, memorandum allows us to exchange knowledge and exchange expertise, which will improve operational effectiveness. It'll help shape the global humanitarian and development agenda. The World Bank, for example, can help the ICARC understand the institutional, legal and financial factors that shape the performance of utilities, for example. And the ICRC can bring perspectives to the World Bank on how systems break down during conflict and on ways to ensure continuity in service delivery with the humanitarian objective of safeguarding public health. Regarding climate change, what we know is this, that you know, 20 um, of the countries deemed most vulnerable to climate change, more than half of those are affected by conflict. Conflict reduces the capacity of people to adapt and to respond and do that collectively. And it's almost impossible to work together if you're fighting with your neighbour. That's why conflict and climate change pose a double threat. They overlap, they compound each other. And if years of conflict shatter not only lives, but communities, schools, hospitals, markets, then the prospects of a collective response to what could be unpredictable weather patterns, extreme weather events are grim. Climate change doesn't occur in a vacuum and we need to know that its impact is made worse by overlapping with conflict. I can give you an example there if, if you like. In, in Mali, in, in West Africa, living conditions are, are difficult in the best of times, but hardship um, from decades of desertification and what is now rare and unpredictable rainfall, as well as a, a lack of infrastructure, um, has made, is made worse by, by what is a long-standing conflict. So when times are good, pastoralists and their herds of cattle, I, I come back again to, to cattle and herds, um, would be able to travel far and, and graze their um, cattle over land and, and access water. But this year, due to the insecurity caused by conflict, they can't. They're trapped in place. Their animals are dying and the people are becoming destitute. Across Africa, these dynamics fuel tensions between herders and farming communities, 
as the competition for scarce resources grows. So that I think is an example of, of how conflict and climate change intersect and interact to pose one of these wicked problems that you mentioned. So conflict and climate change already intersect in a very problematic way. What happens when we also add COVID-19 to that? Oof, yes, it's a, uh, a trifecta that you don't really want. We've seen, we've seen coronavirus disrupt and, and overwhelm even the world's most advanced health systems. When you place that as a layer upon conflict, when you place that as a layer upon climate change, or when you experience all three of those together, then the stakes are even higher. I can give you an example from South Sudan. Um, people walk sometimes for, for hours, if not days, to reach medical care. In Juba, the capital, there's only one doctor per 65,000 people. You compare that to, to Spain or Portugal, I think, where there's one per 45 um, people. And this figure worsens when you move to the rural areas. So across the country, um, you have also only two out of five health facilities functioning. And at the same time, you've got armed violence. So in the last two months, the ICRC's treated um, hundreds of people for gunshot wounds. But the wards of health centres are full of people with gunshot wounds, people who are also dealing with the pandemic. So there I think you see that, um, that it's a very difficult situation. But even here, the, the South Sudan Red Cross, with the support of the, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, with us and others, have used um, over 1,400 volunteers to run health campaigns on COVID-19, as well as distributing water and buckets where they're most needed. The ICRC and, and others have this experience in collectively responding to disease from Ebola to the current crisis, both across Africa and, and further across the world. It's interesting to hear those examples from Africa, but to come a bit closer to home, the Pacific is a region that really exemplifies the overlap of scarce resources, of climate change, and now also of the threat of COVID-19. Can you comment on some of the work that the ICRC has been doing in the Pacific? Certainly. Uh, in fact, uh, Australia um, is part of our regional delegation, which is based in Suva in Fiji. And that uh, regional delegation covers all of the countries of the Pacific. Also in Fiji is uh, the representation from the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. And they're doing a lot of work uh, in relation to, to COVID in, um, in this region. Um, but as far as the ICRC is concerned, we have quite a large operation in Papua New Guinea. Um, we've been there for nearly two decades. Um, we um, have a focus on the work in the Highlands, um, mainly as a result of the tribal violence that's occurring um, in the highlands. And of course, once again, you have tribal violence and then you have an overlay of, uh, of COVID-19. So we've stepped up our operations by providing 
personal protective equipment, um, hand washing stations, um, hygiene, as well as awareness materials to various of the health facilities in the Highlands. That's part of our capacity building measures. So they are over and above the support that we generally give to these health facilities in the Highlands, but they're directed towards COVID. So for ICRC, COVID is another layer on our work, and I can talk about that more broadly uh, in a minute, but also we're um, working closely with authorities in, um, in Port Moresby and in other detention facilities to make sure that people are aware of the threat of uh, the virus, um, to make sure that um, people are prepared uh, and able to respond, um, particularly in relation to the possibility of something either coming into the prison or developing in the prison and then going out. So this whole idea of ensuring distancing, but in particular, um, uh, health and um, and hand washing and other health measures are what we are really focusing on there. F further afield, um, we're using um, social media to ensure that there is credible information, making sure that people know the facts, because as we know, there's a lot of misinformation about COVID uh, going around. So we, um, we are ensuring that people, particularly in the more remote places of the, of the highlands, um, know and understand what COVID is and, and what's occurring. Um, we're also dealing with mental health because we see that people, both mental health, um, both health workers, um, but also the general population feel COVID-related stress. And we are trying to ensure that people are aware of that fact and have strategies to try to deal with that. We have a mental health and psychosocial support person who is working in the Highlands to do just that. We're working with corrections commissioners across 14 countries in the Pacific to ensure that they understand best practices and to facilitate peer-to-peer -peer exchange uh, in the Pacific Islands. And of course, we're working with um, um, the National Red Cross societies across the Pacific so that their communications um, are um, as good as they can be in terms of the pandemic. What kind of impact has this time of COVID-19 and other challenges had on your staff and your affiliate groups throughout the Pacific? How are they doing? In particular in the Pacific, yes. Um, I mean, one of the difficulties, of course, for us in, in these times is, are the uh, travel restrictions. There are, of course, restrictions on bringing in goods. Um, there are restrictions in bringing in people. And uh, as, as you're probably aware, uh, we cycle through people. So people begin missions, they end missions, and um, trying to have the people starting their missions or being able to take um, rest and recovery or um, being able to end their missions, um, this is something that we have to factor in given the reduction in um, commercial flights and, and other things. So I think that's certainly one of the... Um, one of the difficulties. Another, of course, is um, as we see across the globe, uh, the lack of per, um, protective personal equipment um, and being able to ensure that people are 
who are on the front line dealing with um, dealing with the health crisis are able to be protected as much as possible. Moving on slightly now, you've suggested in the past that Australia needs to broaden our circle of empathy in order to assist those who are affected by the pandemic against the backdrop of violent conflict that we've been discussing. What does this approach entail and how might we broaden our circle of empathy? Australia um, and many, many other countries have, of course, been focused domestically in relation to their response to COVID. And that's quite right and, and proper. I mean, this is something which affects everybody. The problems in Australia uh, are real in terms of, of COVID. Particularly, we see um, the, the rise again in, in Victoria of the numbers of COVID cases. In a similar way to how we've spoken about climate change um, and uh, other wicked problems, I think Australia, along with another uh, a number of other countries who have the ability to do so, need to, to take into account the fact that this is going to be devastating if it takes hold in countries in Africa or in the Middle East, in countries that are facing conflict as well as COVID. And I don't know whether you saw, but I mean, there are now floods in Yemen. So you, you've had you've had cholera, you've got COVID, you've got armed conflict, you've got climate change, you've got flooding as part of that. 130,000 people are displaced in Yemen as a result of that. Um, so I, I think it's really understanding that um, we are doing it really tough in Australia, but people are also doing it really tough elsewhere. So um, just making sure that that doesn't get lost. I think it's also the case that... Um, that we, we see uh, that there are a number of things that are taking up people's uh, time and energy and just making sure that, that uh, things like um, COVID in, in countries way away uh, does not get lost. I mean, I think the challenge that the aid sector has perpetually faced, in particular this year, is making the argument for international aid and development funding when the challenges domestically are so great as they are right now. How do you respond to those questions when people ask why we should support international causes when our domestic environment is as it is? Well, particularly in terms of COVID, this is something that doesn't know any borders. This is something which, as we've seen, um, can be brought back to Australia very easily. Um, that's that's how we've had the numbers of cases that we that we have because it was brought into Australia. And if we don't deal with this in solidarity, if we do not see this as a global problem that requires global solutions, then the time it takes to rid the world of COVID will be longer because if it flares up again in other places, it can easily come back here, it can, it can circle and, and we will face what we are facing now and possibly worse. So it's this whole idea that uh, we need to work together um, to face this crisis. The ICRC is undergoing particular efforts to protect essential workers. 
How can our audience and the community at large support the ICRC's efforts to protect essential workers? I think that's really in in two ways, a, a short-term and a long-term way. One is to do what we can to ensure that the uh, essential workers have what they need to be able to do what they need to do. And there I'm talking about personal protective equipment. Um, but also allowing the uh, the swift and safe movement of, of medicines and other medical needs. But I think there's a slightly more longer term one, and that is to understand that um, health and medical personnel are doing a vital job and that they should be allowed to do that job without fear of stigma, Um, making sure that they are not uh, subject to threats, to violence, making sure that um, their healthcare framework is able to be protected. And I think that's the case in conflict, but I think it's also the case in, in even countries like Australia. I think that's really important to, to make sure that um, the role of healthcare workers, which is that um, they are impartial and treat the people who are the um, most in need first, um, should be dealt with in that regard and not, not either stigmatised for their work or singled out. Okay, the last question I want to ask you is something a little bit different. You mentioned earlier that the ICRC has an interesting partnership with the World Bank. The ICRC has also teamed up with the makers of the online video game Fortnite to raise awareness about its work to a younger demographic. That's a really interesting partnership. Can you tell me how that project has gone? Yes, well, I think the the idea for the ICRC, who is traditionally not been an organisation that partners. We partner within the movement, uh, the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, because we have 192 national Red Cross and Red Crescent societies in the world, and we have the International Federation that concentrates more on non-conflict disasters, and they're our traditional partners. But we've seen that it is difficult to do many of the things that we want to do alone. We need to reach out to lots of different groups um, on many subjects because we may not be subject experts in some of the things that we are wanting to do. One of those is working in the gaming industry. We don't know how to work in the gaming industry, but it is a huge market in terms of communication. Two billion people across the world play Fortnite. And um, so we, we teamed up, uh, as you say, with Fortnite to have uh, this game called Life Run. Life Run uh, is a, a um, part of the, the simulated game where instead of uh, killing people, you try and save them. Um, You more or less act as an ICRC worker for the day and uh, undertake some of the activities that we do. And um, we thought that this would be really different. And in terms of communication, I would say it was a real success. Um, We had massive media coverage, um, massive social media coverage, and um, 
even by the end of, of February, we had more than 20,000 unique players who'd already played Life Run. Um, and, and the numbers, you know, when you, when you look at uh, a country like China are, are huge people, numbers of people actually following the game and uh, exploring it, um, probably doing better than I did because I, I crashed and burnt very early trying to, trying to play it. Um, but uh, I think that's more my, my, hopefully, more my skill with video games than it is being a humanitarian. Um, but I think the bottom line for, for Life Run is that we had great um, awareness um, as a result of it. And, and now it's up to us, I think, to look at the next steps and how to engage with what we see as an incredibly important and really influential uh, industry. I might just, uh, if I may, just quote um, from Jason Brush, um, who, who was involved in the product and service design as head of innovation with Wonderman Thompson West, which is actually the, one of the companies behind this. And he said, none of this was easy. Life Run required true creative bravery on the part of the ICRC. A 150-year-old, three-time Nobel Peace Prize winning organisation whose work on issues of war and peace affects all of humanity and for whom a medium like Fortnite was highly unconventional. But in embracing the potential of gaming for good, they were able to inspire growth of awareness and relevance to a global demographic that would not easily have been reached otherwise. So I think um, getting that sort of um, praise from within the industry, I think shows how ICRC can adapt to new ways of getting our message out there. Indeed. Wow, that's a fantastic quote. I. I hope to be able to play the game. Is it still publicly available? It's still publicly available. If you if you are a Fortnite player, or even if you're mm. not, you can um, you can go on and and try Life Run as a a parallel um, to some of the other games that they provide. <laughs> I, I've never played a video game in my life, but maybe it's time. Maybe I'm ready to become a Fortnite player. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that example with us. Leonard, of a, a truly innovative partnership. Now, it would be remiss of me not to mention that you are leaving your current role. So before we go, can you tell us about the role that you are moving to in the next couple of months? I can. Um, after over eight years in Australia, which I have to say has been a wonderful experience, I think working in Australia is, it is challenging. There's always something new, something different to, um, to keep you interested. Um, I've been um, appointed to a very different challenge, and that is as uh, the deputy head of delegation uh, working on what we call prevention um, in Abuja, Nigeria. So that for me is, is quite exciting and challenging because it's, uh, it's, I think, our fifth largest delegation worldwide. Um, and the work there is uh, very operational. So it will be quite different to what I've been used to these last few years, but it will be very, uh, very enjoyable, I think, to be back uh, in the field. This is the field for ICRC because our headquarters is in Geneva, Switzerland, but uh, to be working in a more operational context, I think, will be um, quite absorbing. 
and pending COVID, you should be flying over there before the end of the year. That's true. Let's hope so. Thank you so much, Leonard, for your time. That was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. That was episode 89 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and I'll see you next week.